open to the book of Esther. Albert's going to teach chapters 5 and 6, but we're going to read chapter 5 together now. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we look into your word this morning, I don't want to just gloss over what Nate had shared. We lift up that young man who is having a difficult time uh, with losing his parent, um, trying to live his life and yet threatened to lose it every day. And so we lift him up to you and we pray, Lord, for that protection of him as well as other young men in East Oakland. Thanks for Nate's work. And Lord, would you speak to us through this scripture this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Very ambitious morning this morning. We're going over two chapters. It's like an unheard of thing in Regen history. But we're going to do it. And actually, we might even cover four chapters because we're going to have to look at chapter four and we're reading chapter seven, verse one. So starting with chapter four, verse 11, for a little bit of background here, reads this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now you skip down to verse 16, and this is what Esther says. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It was against the law to approach the throne of the king unsummoned, but Esther was willing to put her life at risk for her people, and you keep in mind that Esther has not been with the king for 30 days. It's been a month 
that she's not even seen her husband. So things aren't looking all that good for her to interact with the king here. It's been 30 days. But before she just kind of barges into the court, she puts herself in a position of success. Esther proactively places herself in a position where she can find favor, just like Ruth did in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, where she says, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. That we need to take initiative if we are to find favor. You know, that job you want, you know, a little bit of effort needs to be put forth to meet, you know, the job requirements, the job qualifications. You need to apply. Rarely do those opportunities just kind of fall in our laps. And I often hear about people who desire to be in community or who desire to be in a romantic relationship. And it's just probably not going to happen if you're just a hermit in your room and just kind of like playing video games, right? It's not going to happen that way. We're going to have to put ourselves in a position to meet people. And it's like this in most things in life that we need to be proactive to position ourselves to find favor. And Esther puts herself in such a position. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, I mean, she wouldn't have been seen if she didn't put herself there. She won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. How many of us we just kind of rush into things without thinking what the results will be. Now Esther's preparation actually didn't start in chapter 5. It started in chapter 4. Right? She asked the Jews in Susa to fast with her. To fast for her. In chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Many people are really rash in their decision making. They act upon their decisions before they've even asked a community of believers to spiritually intercede for and with them. And then you look at what Esther did after she had her community fasting with her about this decision. Then she puts on her royal robes. You know, you go to a job interview and you go dressed appropriately, right? If it's within the context of a business dress, you don't go in wearing shorts and flip-flops. You know, kind of show up that way. And if it's in the context of a work where it's really casual, the environment's really casual, you don't go in with formal wear. So she's really smart. And she's learned from her experience because she's hung out with Haggai in chapter 2 as to how to look a certain way, how to present herself in a certain way. And Haggai was the eunuch who was in charge of all the women in chapter 2, and you can read more about him there. And so here Esther thought about what she was going to wear for this mission. And what she wore mattered. And perhaps the king summoned her because he thought, you know, something's up. She has those clothes on. You know, it's not like her gardening clothes or like whatever. It's like she has those clothes. And so perhaps he thought, she probably really needs to talk to me. And so summons her. And here in verse 3, And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, of course, half of my kingdom wasn't a literal 
half of his kingdom. He's simply telling her, you can ask for anything you want, and I want to do it for you, up to a lot. In verse 4, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to feast that I have prepared for the king. I don't know how this strikes you, but for me, I'm just thinking, what? After everything you've been through, you're asking for a feast. The genocide of your people is right around the corner. You fasted for three days from drink and from food, and you asked your community to do the same thing for you. You risked your life to approach the king, because you're saying, if he doesn't do it, I'm just going to approach him. And you're risking your life. And after all that, all you have to say is, I've made some food, and can you bring along your third-wheeled Haman so that we can all eat together? That's what you want to do. We're going to find out that there's some wisdom to her approach here, verses 5 and 6. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So this is the second time that the king asked Esther this question, and you notice that Esther doesn't come right out and ask the king what she ultimately wanted. Verses 7 and 8, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, come on Esther, and if it is to please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, why is she doing this? Why didn't she just come out and tell him? Keep in mind that Esther has been married to the king for at least five, six years by this time. And she knows the king. She knows this guy. She knows how this guy operates. She knows how this guy thinks. And she knows, I have already won favor from the king in verse 2. It says that she has found favor in verse 8 when inviting the king and Haman to this second feast. And she's continuing to win favor from this king. And she has to, because what she's going to ask is a big ask. It's a big request. Esther is going to come out and identify herself as a Jew. The king doesn't know this about her. Her identity has been hidden this whole time. I mean, how would you feel if your spouse all of a sudden had this big secret to tell you five years later? Like, what? Right? And, and so she's going to ask the king to do something that can't be repealed in this time period. Once a law has been declared, it cannot be repealed. And so this law was the genocide of the Jews, killing the Jews. And she's going to put her husband, the king, in a really tough position because she's a Jew. And she's going to have to be killed. And so it also put into question on whether the king's decision to make this law was a good one or not. And so you're going to have people questioning the king. And it's been a month since they've even seen each other. And you're going to drop all this stuff on him? So she's thinking like, you know, I can't just do that. I need to kind of work this in. I need to find favor. I need to get favor for these circumstances. I need to figure out all this stuff. And it's actually the wise thing to do. Now verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, 
that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now, do you see the difference between Esther's humility and Mordecai's pride? Esther is mindful. She's asking her community to join her in this spiritual discipline of fasting for this really important decision. She's careful in choosing what she wears. She's careful in how she approached the king. She's careful in how she's layering winning the king's favor. And then you look at Haman and what's he like? He's just impulsive. He just makes decisions. He just goes about his business like it's no one else's business. He just does stuff. And he leaves this feast joyful and glad of heart, but you look at how he has very little to no control of his emotions. He just sees Mordecai over there and he's filled with wrath toward him. And this is something that pride does to us. It just blinds us. It doesn't allow us to be content. It makes us believe that we deserve more than we have. It makes us believe that we are more than we actually are. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, like his wife didn't know that, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Discontent, even though he had so much. You know, pride is just a killer. And you look at Haman and how full of himself he was. Verse 10, he sent and brought his friends and his wife in to talk about himself. Have you ever been around people like this? They are seriously some of the most annoying people around. Like, they just love talking about themselves and you're just like, oh, please just be quiet, like stop. And the only thing more annoying than this person is their spouse that goes along with them. Like, oh my gosh, like come on. And, and here he's so arrogant and prideful, he can't see what's really happening. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 reads this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 14, chapter 5. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman can't wait to build this. He wants to see Mordecai die. And then there's this hugely ironic series of events that happens in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bergthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Here's an interesting question. Did God plant the idea of assassinating the king in Bergthana and Teresh's brain? Was that God? No. These guys decided they were going to kill the king on their own free will, on their own volition. Yet, we do have the mystery of God's providence working within the free will of people. See, God was going to save his people no matter what. 
and Mordecai was there to hear of this assassination attempt. So was it a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep that night while Haman was plotting to kill Mordecai? Maybe, but it sure doesn't seem like it. Haman chose to kill Mordecai that night by his own free will, but we do know that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And so the king can't sleep, and he gives these orders to bring the chronicles. Now, out of all things that could have been read, or out of other things that could have been done to put the king to sleep, it's bringing this book of memorable deeds, and what was read? Mordecai saving the king. Now, is that a coincidence? Out of everything that could be read, maybe, it just doesn't seem like it. And it's just so mysterious how God's providence works, this overarching providence, while our free will and the individual details and choices of our life are all working within this. Now, verse 3, And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So Mordecai was never honored for his noble deed. There was nothing. And you're thinking, but he saved the king's life. You think you'd get something, like you'd get a medal or something. He gets nothing. And this is four to five years later that the king is reading what happened. And so for all this time, he has been overlooked for something really important that he's done. Any of you feel like this? You're just like, you've done something great and you've just been overlooked. And maybe it was your parent. Like, I did this awesome thing and I, like, they don't even see this stuff. Or somebody you work with, a relationship you value and that you do all these things and yet there's no recognition. You're just overlooked and nothing's happening. And all of us have felt that we've deserved more than we've received, haven't we? Like, we all have this feeling. But we do what we do for God, whether others recognize it or not. And God sees all of it in his providence and his sovereignty, and he remembers all the good that you've done. And it may take years for people to recognize this, or it may not even happen ever, yet God knows these things. Verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman was up really early in the morning to get these gallows made and to hang Mordecai on that. He's in the outer court just waiting for the king to wake up so that he can get this permission. And the king has Mordecai on his mind too, except it's not to kill him. And so you see, God is working, even though he's not mentioned in this book, that he's in control even when things seem out of control. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And there you see the pride coming in again. And he goes in to talk to the king about killing Mordecai, but then the king mentions this thing about honoring somebody, and he automatically thinks, it's me. And he's like, forget the Mordecai thing. Let's get to me now. Let's get to this. It's all about me. And so he proceeds to tell the king everything that he would like to see done for himself. Verses 7 through 10, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, 
and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave nothing out that you have mentioned. We talked about this several weeks ago, and there was a word that I grew up with, you know, moded. It means like someone's been put in their place. And here's another word that we used growing up, burn. And if you really wanted to put somebody in their place, you'd hold the urn part, right? Burn. And you'd even add this. You'd add ooh before you. Ooh, burn. You do that. So you guys feel that? You feel the burn? Um, we'll just go past that. Now, Haman, <laughs> Haman got burned. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Isn't this so different than Haman who like when he got back he had to bring his friends in, he'd bring his wife in and talk about himself. And here, this is just so telling of his heart and of his mind and what he was preoccupied with. Because after such an honor, you're wearing the king's actual robes that he's worn before. You're riding the horse that he's actually ridden before. You're wearing his crown. All this stuff. After all this honor, you would think that you would do what Haman did. You'd gather all your friends and say, like, oh man, you know, the king doesn't really smell as good as you think and his robes really stink and the horse is just, oh, and you talk about all this experience, but where's Mordecai? He just goes back to where he was. Why? Why was Mordecai doing that? Because he was preoccupied with the news of what was going to happen to him and his people. Genocide was right around the corner. Hey, who cares about me wearing a robe? Who cares about me riding on the king's horse? I may be dead, and everyone I care about may be dead really soon. Forget all that stuff. Isn't this life that it is impossible for you to enjoy a success in your life and honor in your life if you have a loved one in the emergency room? Like You can't enjoy it. You can't like this stuff. You forget about being self-absorbed. You forget about yourself. You're like, the people I love are going to die. And this is just how life is. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Forget the fact that this guy is the guy that pronounced the genocide and wants to kill all these people. All oh, me, all oh, men. I, I can't believe it. That it was him. I had to parade him around and say that he was cool. And I, uh, all this crying, whatever. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. All of this, all chapter 5 and 6, like, well, what, what is all of this about? God's timing is perfect. He's not early. He's not late. His timing is perfect. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 119, verse 67, 
Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Do you hear that? We did everything we wanted to do. But it was affliction, suffering, bereavement, grief, bankruptcy. It was those things that woke us up and led us to the word of God, to keep his word. Before that affliction, we did whatever we wanted. But now, I keep your word. Now, who likes affliction? Who enjoys that? We may like what it produces afterward, but who enjoys actually going through that? It's really difficult to embrace affliction because it's unpleasant. Yet God is with us in the affliction, in the pain, in the heartache, and it's hard to realize at times But the thing is this, you're here. You're here. You're alive to experience God with what you do have right now, right here. Now, I don't know what that is for you to kind of have you feel alive or have you to see God or recognize God's presence. But for me, whenever I'm feeling kind of like this lowness, the thing that I love to do is I love to hold on to my two-year-old's foot. And so I love her feet. I don't know what it is about toddler feet. I love toddler feet. And don't worry, if you have a toddler, I'm not going to touch your kids. I'll just touch my own, okay? And so I do that whenever I'm feeling a little down, and I'll grab her and put her in my bed, and I'll put her next to me, and I'll just hold her feet, and I'll just, like, rub her feet. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like a rabbit's foot, but a baby foot. And it's just like, it's like, this is so awesome. And it just like connects me to God again. Yeah, like this is cool. And I don't know what it is. Borrow one of your friend's two-year-olds and just kind of try it. It's an awesome thing. But maybe for you, it's kind of just like taking your shoes and socks off and walking on grass just to remember and to be in touch with God's creation or taking a huge deep breath in ocean air or yelling in a canyon and just hearing that echo go through. I don't know what it is that reminds you that there's something more than the challenges that you're going through. That God is present through all of it and in the miracle of life through a baby's foot or his creation of nature to the affliction of the individual, he's present in all of it. The Jews faced genocide and each individual Jew went through their own personal affliction. And God was there through all of it, just like he is with it through you, whatever you're going through or will go through in your life. And sometimes we question what God is up to. We even question his existence because of the existence of affliction. Because how can God possibly exist if there is such injustice, inequity, affliction in the world? But maybe it's this. That it's actually the very injustice, the very inequity, the very affliction that will lead us to God if our pride doesn't lead us astray, just as the psalmist had written. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Don't we do that in our comforts? You're comfortable, you just think nothing in the world can affect you, and you just kind of live your life the way that you want it, and then you kind of have something happen to where it's like, oh man, I really need to get down to the basics of my life and what's really important to me. But now I keep your word. See, that affliction in our life, it can be the lighthouse that leads us to God. And some of us 
maybe going through challenging times in our relationships, our employment, our finances, just not knowing the future. And in times when we experience worry and frustration, anxiety, fear, doubt, we must know that God is with us in this bigger story, in this overarching story, as well as with us in the very small details of our life to where we just make choices and we make decisions. And his timing is perfect. You and I don't think so all the time. We might doubt that he cares about certain situations in our life because if God, you cared, you wouldn't have let this happen. But he has proven himself to have perfect timing and that he indeed does care. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Out of all of history, it was during that time 2,000 years ago. That was the right time, and his timing is perfect, and he does indeed care. God's will will be done, that overarching will of his he has given us the dignity to partner with him to accomplish his will. But we have these choices to make in kind of the minutia of life and the details of life. And he has given each one of us a free will to choose to love, to forgive, to reconcile, to restore. And all of us have made a ton of mistakes. Now, one of the beautiful things that God has done for us is that he is our redeemer. That he can make whole whatever is broken. He's a God of redemption. So we have hope no matter what the circumstances are ahead of us. We can experience joy even in our sadness, in our regrets, in our disappointments, in our pain. Now what will keep us from that joy? Pride. Hardness of heart. The refusal, the rejection to exercise our free will in accordance to the will and desire of God like Haman. Haman could have chosen to let things go with Mordecai. He chose to pursue genocide, to build the gallows, to hang Mordecai on, to be filled with pride and arrogance. And what happened to him? Rather than Mordecai being hung on the gallows, Haman had to parade Mordecai around as a hero. And Haman had to proclaim, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Do you foresee that this will be what happens to those who reject Jesus as Lord? This very scenario, this very picture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you like it or not. It is the King's orders. See, Haman didn't want to proclaim Mordecai's honor, but he did. It was the king's orders. There will be some who don't want to proclaim Jesus as Lord, but you will. It is the king's orders. We will bow down in allegiance to Jesus with grateful and thankful hearts, or there will be others who will bow down simply because they have to even though they don't want to. But you will bow down just the same. You will confess just the same. It is the king's order. 
It's the same action, but just a very different experience of confessing Jesus as Lord and bowing the knee. You can imagine that the Jews were pretty happy that Mordecai received this honor, that they were thrilled. And then you look at Haman, not so much. He hated it, but he had to do it anyway. And the refusal to bow is not because Jesus is not worthy of honor. It's not because Mordecai wasn't worthy of honor. He saved the king. He's worthy of it. Jesus is worthy of it. He saved us all from our sin. What is it? It is the pride of one's heart to receive that as truth. To believe that they should be the one exalted and not Jesus. That they should be the one wearing the robes. That they should be the one on the horse. That they should be the one wearing the crown and not Jesus. But the truth is the truth and Jesus will be the one exalted and honored. Last observation before we close. Don't you think this whole spectacle of Mordecai being paraded around just would have been really, really odd for the people of Susa? Put yourself in those shoes because we already know that a decree has already been declared that they were going to be wiped out. These Jews were going to be killed, all of them. And then suddenly one of their own, Mordecai, who they know is at the king's gate is being paraded around as a hero. Isn't that confusing? I mean, you're going to kill all of us. And now you got one of us like being paraded around as a hero. And then Haman is the one leading the parade, yet he's the very guy that came up with the idea for the genocide. And this is just weird. Now you go back to Esther chapter 3, verse 15. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Yeah. What's going on here? These series of events, they were not helping the confusion. It's much like it is today, isn't it? In our world, people doing this and people doing that and things just don't make a whole lot of sense as to why our civic leaders are doing these things or why our political leaders are doing those things and everything's just kind of confusing. All the details that we're making down here, but here's the thing. God is in control. No matter what these decisions people are making, no matter what future leaders that we're going to have in power, you know, elections are right around the corner, no matter what all these little decisions are, God is still in control. His plans will come to pass. There's nothing that can stop the return of Jesus. That's the overarching thing. He's coming back no matter what decisions we make. Right? So here's a summary of this plan. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace in Jesus, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. The plan of God will come to pass. Nothing will be able to stop that. Nothing will be able to stop this. But in here, we all have to choose wisely this day whom we are going to serve. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your wisdom and your discernment in the decisions of our life. We realize, Lord, that we're not just puppets and robots just going about, but that you do give us free will. Just like those eunuchs who decide to try to assassinate the king, just like Haman deciding 
to kill the Jews, just like Esther deciding to find favor, just like Haman deciding to sit at the gate even though he received this honor. We have all these choices to make, and yet, Lord, through all of it, you promised to preserve your people, and you did. And so, Lord, may we be able to identify what that bigger story is within our life and how we fit into that. In Jesus' name, amen.